quiet. Our opening words this morning are from the beat poet, James Broughton. It's all in your head, the first man said. It's all in your heart, said another. It's all in your stars, said the man with scars. It's all in your guts, said his brother. It's all in your soul, said the man who was slow. It's all in your balls, said the fast one. It's all in your things, said the fellow with rings. It's in no thing at all, said the last one. I invite you now to join in singing our opening song as the band leads us. I'll buy you a diamond ring, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. I'll give you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Because I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. I'll give you all I've got to give if you say you love me too. I may not have a lot to give, but, but what, what I got, I'll give, give to you. Cause I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love, can't buy me love. Everybody tells me so, can't buy me love. No, 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 no. Buy me love. Everybody tells me so. Can't buy me love. No, 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 no. Well, say you don't need no diamond rings, and I'll be satisfied. Tell me that you want the kind of things that money just can't buy. Well, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love Yeah, I don't care too much for money Money can't buy me love I don't care too much for money Money can't buy me love Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Rajesh Vidyasagar, 
and my personal pronouns are he and his, and I'm so glad you're here this morning. Visitors and guests, we hope you got a blue name tag so we can all know who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about this community, which is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you, find out what you're looking for. Please join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and in the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program uh, so we can add you to our mailing list. Please drop it in the collection box uh, as it passes later in the program. I want to remind all of us uh, to please silence electronic devices so that we can be fully present this morning. And I now invite Linda to read our statement of purpose. Linda is a member of the Mindfulness Meditation Group, an area for our particular focus this month uh, during the theme of balance. Uh, Linda will read our statement of purpose so we might hear our shared uh, values in each other's voices. Morning. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith and hu in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Linda. As Linda lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future. We ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world, especially those who have experienced violence and loss. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. you now into a time of meditation. Please make yourselves comfortable, close your eyes if you prefer. Settle your body firmly, evenly, between left and right. Straighten your back, finding balance between 
leaning forward and leaning back. The seated mountain. Relax your body and focus on your breath. Feel it filling your lungs in and out. In Take a deep breath. As you breathe in, fill your heart with the joy of today. As you breathe out, give that joy to everyone around you. As you remain seated and centered, be aware that you have a past behind you future ahead. Yesterday is past, tomorrow is ahead. And here we are, totally present, balanced and poised in the now. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. Relax your body, your feet, your legs, your torso, your arms, your neck, your head. Breathe in. Breathe out. As you relax your body, heighten your awareness of everything around you. Breathe in, breathe out. Your neighbors around you. Breathe in, breathe out. The West community. Breathe in. Breathe out. From such awareness comes readiness for all that brings, that life brings to you. Be here now. Be here now. Breathe in. Breathe out. Between yes and no, breathe in. Breathe out. Between light and dark, breathe in, breathe out. <clears throat> Between joy and sadness, breathe in, breathe out. Between past and future lies the space for potent action today. Breathe in, breathe out.
Don't let your mind get weary and confused. Your will be still, don't try. Don't let your heart get heavy, child. Inside you there's a strength that lies. your soul get lonely child it's only time it will go by don't look for love in faces places it's in you that's where you'll find Thank you so much, Rajesh and Johnny as well. Boy, meditations like that, <clears throat> I think I should just let us sit in silence. 
But unluckily for you all, I really do enjoy talking. So <clears throat> I want to start actually with something I heard in a sermon many years ago. I'm always comforted when I remember things from sermons I heard in the past because it makes me think that maybe you'll take something away from what I've devoted my life to. And, um, and this was such an arresting line. I don't even remember what, it was, what the, the sermon as a whole was about. But I remember sitting there and hearing the, the speaker say, look at your calendar. And I mean, I think she had us take out our calendars, you know, our phones, or maybe it was before phone calendars, and, and look at your week. Look at the hours and what you filled it up with. Think about the things that aren't written on your calendar, you know, but that you know you do, like feed your children, bathe, sleep. That, she said, is your life. That week that you're spending, the way you are spending your hours day by day and week by week, that's how you're spending your life. And I thought, oh, <laughs> wow, that's intense. That's intense because when I look at my calendar, I don't know about you, but I often see what feels like a bit of a mishmash. You know, I, I start the week on Tuesdays. Those are my Mondays. I, Monday is my day off. And so on Tuesday morning, I try to get in and look at my Google calendar, and then I like to write everything down on a real calendar. Just That's the way my brain thinks. And so I fill in the hours. And on Tuesday, there's usually hours open you know, in my work week especially, where I imagine I'll be thinking deeply about things. And then about by Tuesday afternoon, they've filled in. You know, I've checked my email and someone's asked for an appointment with me and I feel like I can squeeze them in. And uh, somebody else needs a conference call or I've realized I have this big project that I've really got to write and that's this week it's supposed to be written. And I fill in those calendar hours I took a community organizing training several years ago, and one of the things I remember from that, it was this week-long training, one of the things I remember was that they, they were talking about the importance of doing individual relationship meetings, those one-on-one -on -one meetings that community organizing is built on. And they said, you have to look at your calendar three and four weeks ahead and plot out when you're going to have those meetings. Because if you don't take control of your calendar, it will take control of you. It will fill up with all kinds of things that you perhaps did not entirely intend to put there. Perhaps you know how that goes. I got the chance recently to spend time with some friends um, I've known for more than 15 years before any of us were married or had kids or had the jobs that we have now. And so we talked a little bit about uh, work and life and work-life balance, <laughs> or the lack of it, rather. I find it reassuring sometimes to have those conversations because it makes me feel as though I am not alone in feeling sometimes that my schedule is a little out of 
control. The glossy magazines will suggest occasionally that we can get that balance in the right place if we just have a good organizational plan for our shoes, you know? Like if we found the right boxes that matched for our shoes in our closet, we would probably achieve work-life balance. I do not believe that is accurate. <laughs> I read a short book recently um, called, well, actually, I have to confess, I haven't finished it. <laughs> it's called Beyond Busyness, Time Wisdom for Ministry by Stephen Cherry, and I started it, and then I didn't have time to finish it. But, um, but, but what I'm telling myself is that there was so much wisdom in the beginning of the book that I needed time to digest it, so I will return to it. I thought when I got it that it would be the sort of ministerial equivalent of a shoe organization strategy, you know, like telling me how to set up my email reading time or how to block in pastoral care well, you know, like an organizational model. But actually, the book has really invited me to think about time and particularly about busyness in a different way. It asks that we stop buying into the idea that busyness is an indicator of our own importance. You know, I don't know if that rings true for you, but I circled it in the book really big with the, with the highlighter. <clears throat> the book had sort of a series of steps um, for people who wanted to change how they thought about their own schedule and their time and their busyness. And one of them was, was inviting us to stop using the word busy to describe ourselves. And I thought, oh, I'll try that. That, that sounds like an interesting thought experiment. And then, you know those check-ins at the beginning of meetings that we often do here? Or even when someone just asks you, how are you? How are things going? I discovered I do not know how to answer that question without saying I'm busy. When I tried to remove the word from my vocabulary, I found that when someone said, well, how are you doing? I would say, oh my gosh, I'm, uh, oh. how am I if I'm not busy? If that's not the defining characteristic of my life, you know? And sometimes, at least among clergy, and perhaps it occurs for you too in your professions or among your friends or your volunteering buddies, it almost seems as though busyness is a competition, you know. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, me too. I'm busier than that. <laughs> and so I have been trying to think, using the wisdom from the first few chapters of that little book, about what I want my schedule to say about myself instead. One of the helpful ideas in it was to think about time a little differently. That there's time like hours in the day and minutes in the hour, but there's also sort of long-term time, you know, time over years, and that being 
being in a community like this one, in a congregation, in, in any place where we're asked to think intentionally, we can think about that sort of time as well. And then the other thing that the book invited us to do was to be really present in whatever block of time we were in. Just the way the meditation and the music invited us to do this morning. To see that even if we had a, an appointment right after and an appointment right before, that whatever appointment we were in then, whatever email we were responding to in that moment or phone call we had picked up, that we could be in it in a particular non-busy way. You know what I mean? You know how it feels different to be in something in a busy way? Like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm talking with you. It's really important to me, right? And to be in it in a non-busy way. There's a Zen koan. A koan is just a little, um, a little lesson, a little riddle in the Zen Buddhist tradition. And there's a koan that goes, how you do anything is how you do everything. It's kind of a high-pressure koan, in my opinion, but it's helpful, too. How do I want to be in a moment? I wrote and spoke here about work-life balance many years ago. It was in my first couple of years here. And I used a metaphor that I liked so much that I continue to refer to it in my, uh, in my own life. I considered actually just sort of taking some of that platform and doing it over again, but I figured if I remembered the metaphor, it was possible someone else did, so I ought to be transparent about recycling it. I was talking about trying to find balance, you know, looking through our calendars, if our calendar is our life, if how we spend our hours and our days is how we spend our life. How do we achieve balance in that time? And my conclusion back then, and I think it's true still, is that life is rarely perfectly balanced in any given day or week or even month or year. That rather, here's the metaphor, life is like a seesaw. You know, where you go through periods where you feel as though it is swirling around you and you can barely keep up, and then periods where things feel calm or even fallow, where you have rest, sometimes more rest than you want, right? Perhaps you are out of a job and wishing you had one or waiting for something to happen in your life, or perhaps that rest is chosen and desired, but that rather than imagining we can achieve equilibrium at any given time, we should rather try to stay on the seesaw of life, to expect that it will go up and down and back and forth, and to realize that seesaws work mostly with another person on the other end, you know, a friend, a community, family, people that are catching us when things get hard, people we can catch and help to balance when our lives hold more rest. 
I've thought about work-life balance as well, informed by the work of David White. David White is a poet who wrote a beautiful book called The Three Marriages, where he talks about the idea of work-life balance as being sort of a, a fallacy. And actually, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Work-life balance? Like, are you not alive at work? Isn't it all sort of life, actually? <laughs> David White's idea is that we are all of us in three marriages. One, which is our work in the world, whether that is paid work or volunteer work, how we are in the world. One of which is our relationship to our family and friends, to other people, whether it's romantic partnerships or friendship partnerships, children, parents. And one of which is our relationship, our marriage with ourself, our inner being, who we are internally. And what, what David White asks us to do is to think not about trying to balance those three, but rather to braid them together, to see our lives as a whole, where all three of those come together into one self, one life. But listen, here I am talking about something as easy as, you know, having a life that um, reflects our most closely held values on an hour-by-hour -hour basis. And what I really want to talk about is something harder. What I really want to talk about is our money and how that is our life as well. We had a vision and budget summit um, last Sunday afternoon that the board and the stewardship team did, and, and Margaret Conway, who's our treasurer here, shared a quote I loved from Joe Biden. Don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. Don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. Ooh, so if my hour-by-hour hour calendar is my life, Biden says I'm also supposed to be able to look at my checkbook, at my checking account, my credit card statements, and see what that shows about me. The title of this platform is Balanced Checkbook, Balanced Life, and when I first came up with that title and sent it around, you know, I had people saying, oh my gosh, you know, you're not going to actually ask us to balance our checkbook, right? I think my mother may be the only person still living, I don't know, maybe some of you do, who actually, you, so, look at that, I knew there'd be someone <laughs> who actually writes in the little register, do you remember, of checkbooks, like, you know, in teeny tiny, you have to write very small to fit in all, every check that she writes. And although I don't do that, you can find it online, I think there is something to it. The intentionality that it brings to those choices, those checks written, that she has to take the extra moment to write it down. I have Amazon Prime, perhaps some of you do as well, and I, I love it. In, in the sort of calendar portion of my life, being able to get something quickly without thinking about it, without having to 
create a trip to the store and all of that is a huge help. But I got the app on my phone and there's a buy it now option. I mean, it literally takes me approximately 11 seconds to make a purchase using that and then it shows up at my door in two days. That might be the opposite of intentional use of money, right? Perhaps you are like me with my Amazon Prime. Perhaps like me, you have some idea of sort of how money comes into your family and some idea about where some of it goes, <laughs> mortgage, rent, but maybe, like me, you feel that there is an awful lot of it that just seems to, like, happen, you know? To be spent somewhere, maybe on pizza? You're not quite sure? <laughs> there have been times in my life where I have known exactly where every bit of money goes because I have needed to know. I have needed to track it closely enough. And you may be in that place where balancing the money that you have and the money that you spend feels like a full-time job in and of itself because it is hard to get it even out in a way that is livable. In situations like that, it can actually be pretty easy to look at your budget and see what you value. Shelter, food, healthcare, if you're lucky, transportation. Actually, as you might know, folks in lower income brackets tend to actually spend percentage-wise more of their income on people that they love or causes or institutions that they care about. Joe Biden could look at those budgets and see values. But what about me? My family is upper middle income, or as I like to say, sort of middle income for D.C., which is quite wealthy anywhere else in the country. <laughs> what does our checkbook, our budget, say about what we value? So, listen, I'm not going to lie. This platform was scheduled for this Sunday in part because Wes's pledge season is starting. Our annual operating budget has been kicked off last week with the vision and budget uh, summit and we'll keep going through pledge dinners at the end of this month and early April. And this is sort of that platform, what some of my colleagues call the sermon on the amount. Do you get it? The sermon on the amount. <laughs> so funny. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and it's true that for my own family, one of the ways that we live our values in our budget is by giving to this institution that after our mortgage payments and our retirement savings, our pledge to Wes, now that we aren't paying for preschool, is our largest chunk of change going out the door. When I was a young adult congregant in a, a congregation, I heard the minister say that your largest charitable giving should be for the community where you put your time and your body and yourself 
And um, being young and impressionable, I just thought that he, he said that, and so that was right, and that's always how we set it up. And if you are feeling young and impressionable, I encourage you to believe me as well. <laughs> but the truth is that while as the organizational leader of this particular institution, I of course hope that our members give generously so we can do all that we dream and envision in the world. As the spiritual or ethical leader of this institution, as the person tasked with supporting each one of you in your own lives, what I care about more than that is simply that you are using your money in ways that align with your values, no matter where that means the money goes. Most of us, not all of us, I want to be really clear because this congregation holds people with a huge variety of incomes and some of us are struggling to just get by. But many of us have some amount of disposable income. Some amount of money that isn't spent on our most basic needs. And so what's interesting to me is, is how we choose to spend that money, each of us individually, how we make those choices. There's a great E.B. White quote um, about time, really. Um, he wrote, I wake up in the morning torn between the desire to save the world and to savor it, which makes planning my day difficult. <laughs> and I think the same could be said of our money, right? That we use it both to savor the world, to enjoy all that is around us and bring joy into our own lives, and to save it. I am by no means opposed to spending money on things that bring me joy, including the most frivolous kind you can imagine. Although because I am a Yankee born and bred, I have this weird compulsion to sort of somehow make those things seem um, like medically necessary. Um, so I, I really like getting pedicures, but it's because one of my toenails grows funny and it's uncomfortable and totally by the way that they end up pink and sparkly. I mean, that's just... Those choices that we make to bring ourselves joy, those are ways to show our values with our disposable income, right? With our money, that we value our own happiness, the happiness of people that we love. One of the things that's given me the the most um, optimism recently has been to see companies that are dropping um, their ties with the NRA. Because, yeah, that, it is exciting. Because in America, <laughs> money talks, right? We often make choices with our shopping dollars. And sometimes I think it's a little silly. We'll have, you know, all the people that will shop from this store uh, against the people that won't shop from that store. But the reality is we're using our money to show our values by where we choose to shop. And so to see some of those shifts gave me hope in this seemingly untractable problem of gun violence in our society. 
Sometimes I think being able to see my budget aligned with my values has to do simply with framing, with thinking deeply about what it is that I'm spending money on. So that HVAC repair, that's like the worst thing to spend money on, right? You know, the thing you have to spend money on, but, but you don't get anything really good out of it, you know? Remembering that, in fact, the HVAC repair keeps my family warm in the winter and cool in the summer, or that I can make choices about it so that it's more energy efficient and lives my values in the world in a different way. When um, our children were young, I remember being at a dinner um, out with Peter. This was, maybe the girls were one and four at that point. And we looked at each other at the end of the dinner and um, sort of admitted to ourselves that dining out was actually a terrible experience at that point in our families' lives. And then sort of looked at the amount of money that we spent when we dined out where we paid people to go have a terrible experience where we felt depressed, unable to eat the food, people were crying, children cried too, you know. And we thought, well, this isn't how we want to spend our money. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the intentionality is even about those little shifts. But then I think too about spending money in a completely different way. We give our children a certain allowance each week, and, um, and we have it set up that they have to put that money divided among a save jar, a spend jar, and a share jar as a way to teach them that you know money is for many different things. It's for things you want right now. It's for things that you're hoping to have in the future. My children are actually both significant savers, and so... <clears throat> it's good because they can fund their own college eventually because um, we're not doing that. Um, and, then, uh, and then that it's used to share in the world as well. That if you have enough money to go in a save jar, you ought to have a share jar as well. And I think about how I teach that to my children and then wonder if I am living it as fully as I wish I were. A number of years ago, a member of Wes wrote in the newsletter article about the decision she and her husband had made several years earlier to tithe from their income. Now, they weren't tithing that all. Tithing, you know, is 10% is of your income. They weren't giving 10% of their income to Wes. It wasn't an article about that. They were, was really an article about their own family choices. To, to have a certain percentage go out into the world to other people, to causes and institutions and people that they cared about. And I remember reading that and thinking about the, how, how little I had heard people talk openly in that way about what they chose to do with their money and how inspiring it was to me to read that and to imagine that that could be a goal it's not one that my family hits yet. We don't tithe our income. But reading about it allows me to set a hope and intention for years to come. We often don't talk about money because it's uncomfortable. Not just here in this community, but out in polite society. Of course, you're not supposed to bring up religion or 
politics or um, sex or money, I think, right? All four of those. And here, here I would say that, you know, we do pretty well talking about religion. We're okay, brave enough to talk about politics. We tend to really enjoy talking about sex and, um, and being a comprehensive sexuality education place, but we're still not sure about talking about money. And that perhaps is what I hope most of all, that just as we might talk about how we spend our time on things we value, on things that help us to both save and savor the world, that we might find a way to talk about our money that way too. This resource that we have in different amounts and different ways, and the choices we can make about using it. One of the most arresting or, or deeply thoughtful things I've seen recently on balance, on money and its twin productivity, was in an article in the New York Times about chronic illness. It was written by Elliot Kukla, a rabbi, who was writing about his own experience with debilitating chronic illness a chronic illness that took away his ability to work for quite some time and even to care for himself. He wrote, like many people, I had once measured my worth by my capacity to produce things and experiences, to be productive at work, share responsibilities at home, show up equally in my friendships and rack up achievements. Being sick has been a long, slow detox from capitalist culture and its mandate that we never rest. Slowly, I found a deeper value in relationship beyond reciprocity, an unconditional love and care based in justice, and a belief that all humans deserve relationship, regardless of whether we can offer anything measurable back. In these discoveries, he goes on, I've been led by other sick and disabled people whose value had always been apparent to me. Amid the brilliant diversity of power wheelchairs, service dogs, canes, and ice packs, it's easy to see that we matter just as we are. Although Kukla was talking about his sense of productivity in relationships or at home or at work, there's something in his words that speaks to, to that idea of how we spend our time and our money, how we are present and intentional in our choices. What I want, I think, for my calendar, for my checkbook, is not so much perfect balance as if that were achievable, but rather awareness noticing, setting intentions and trying to keep them. Thinking about how my push for busyness and productivity and my Amazon Prime swipe might both be not quite where my values lie and wondering if there are shifts I can make along the way that honor more fully who I want to be. Yesterday, my family went to the trampoline park. 
along with everybody else in the DC area <clears throat> who had children at home who couldn't go outside because they would be blown away. <laughs> but we're bouncing, you know. <laughs> So we decided to go to the trampoline park where they could bounce on, on more uh, soft and bouncy things. And while we were there, Joanna, my little one, found a low to the ground wobbly bridge on an on a obstacle course that she wanted to try. It was like a rope bridge, you know, with slats that went along. And she's a small person, so those slats were pretty far apart for her. She wanted to get across in one easy swoop without falling. And so she tried, and there we all were watching her. She tried to get across and she stumbled about halfway through. So she went back to the beginning and tried again and stumbled in the same place. And she tried again and again and kept getting more and more upset so that soon you could see her pre-stumble as she, as she reached the place where she had stumbled before, so sure that she wasn't going to make it, you know unable to get her balance as she was more and more worked up by her desire to get it right. We took a pause. I asked her to stop and breathe in and out and try again. And she did that time make it across this wobbly bridge and I thought, oh, good, another metaphor. <laughs> Might be hard to be my kid, you know? <laughs> another metaphor. That, I think, is what I want. Not to make it across every single time or imagine that I'll be able to, not to maintain perfect balance, but to remember the pause before the step the intentionality, and the centering, so I have a better chance in the wobble of life. I'm 15 for a moment, caught in between 10 and 20, and I'm just dreaming, counting the ways to where you are. I'm 22 for a moment, and she feels better than ever, and we're on fire, making our way back from Mars. Fifteen, there's still time for you Time to buy and time to lose Time to, there's ne never a wish 
better than this when you only got a hundred years to live I'm 33 for a moment I'm still the man but you see I'm a they a kid on the way babe a family on my mind I'm 45 for a moment the sea is high into a crisis chasing the years of my life there's still time for you Time to buy and time to lose yourself Within a morning star Fifteen, I'm alright with you Fifteen, there's never a wish Better than this When you only got a hundred years to live Half time goes by, suddenly you're wise Another blink of an eye, 67 is gone Sun is getting high, we're moving on I'm 99 for a moment And dying for just another moment And I'm just dreaming Counting the ways to where you are Fifteen, there's still time for you Twenty-two, I feel or two Thirty-three, you're on the way Every day's a new day Fifteen, there's still time for you Time to buy and time to choose Fifteen There's never a wish better than this When you only got a hundred years to live So this is the time that we share our reflections on the platform, uh, how what we've heard resonates in our own lives. I'll bring the microphone around. Please raise your hand and begin by sharing your first name. Also, please speak into the mic. It's nice to hold it close so everyone can hear you. Does anyone have something to share? <laughs> 